0: Our Father and our God, as we come to this place, we come to a place in which your Spirit dwells, because you have promised, as you have done in the Gospel of John as we have studied it, the promise of your presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we recognize, Father, that nothing except words come from this pulpit apart from the work of your Spirit. And so we desire that you would open our hearts and minds by your Spirit so that we would hear what you want us to hear and that we would respond in faith and obedience. You know the limitations of the servant who brings the message. We pray, Father, that you would not hear the messenger, but hear the person of Jesus Christ speaking in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was traveling last week with a a dear friend and we were on the airplane and uh, he asked me when we were traveling if this week we were going to be back in the Gospel of John. I told him we were and then he wondered when we might finish the Gospel of John. You know, some questions can't really be answered, can they? That may be one of the secret things of God that Deuteronomy 29.29 speaks about. Uh, This morning will be the 117th message in the series on the Gospel of John, for those of you who are keeping score at home. We started about five years ago, believe it or not. Now, we've had uh, three presidents since I started this series. That might put it in a little bit of context for you. But you know, I've found so much rich instruction in this gospel that I haven't felt pressed to finish it within any particular time frame. That there always seems to be something fresh in it each week, and I trust that you do as well. And we do break the series up from time to time, we do a different series on Communion Sundays, as you know. So quite honestly, I didn't know what to tell my dear friend. I really don't know when we'll finish the Gospel of John. God knows. But then my friend told me about a Bible study on the Gospel of John that he attended one time when he was in the military. And he said the leader spent an inordinate amount of time on the question, why was the Gospel of John written? And the leader had tried to piece together some reasons why the gospel was written by looking at a whole host of different verses and then reasoning from them why Jesus would have said those things, all trying to come up with a conclusion as to why the gospel of John was written. And then my friend said, why didn't he just read the verses in John chapter 20, which tells you why it was written? That verse, as you recall, is the theme verse of the entire book. We've read it many times. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, and here's the purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You know, sometimes the scholars can't see the forest for the trees, One of the other major questions, which is usually associated with the Gospel of John, is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is his identity? And what are we to make of of this amazing Galilean rabbi? Who is that masked man? We might uh, raise that question from the old uh, series on the Lone Ranger. Once again, the answer may be simpler than many scholars would imagine. It's right in the text that we just read. That Jesus Christ is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That answers that question, doesn't it? You know, we're at a point in our study of the Gospel of John where it may be useful to uh, spend a few minutes reminding ourselves of what we have learned about Jesus over these years of study. And there are a couple of ways in which the Gospel answers those questions. The first way is you follow the signs. You follow the signs. Remember the the text in chapter 20 says, these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And there are seven such signs recorded in the Gospel of John. There is the changing of water into wine at Cana at the wedding in John chapter uh, two. There is the healing of the royal official's son in John chapter four. There is the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. There's the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 and also the walking on water in John 6. There's the healing of the man born blind in John chapter 9 and, and raising Lazarus from the dead, of course, in John chapter 11. In each of those episodes, which we have all covered, we learn something about who Jesus is, and they inevitably lead us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you see that? So that's one way to look at it. Uh, but the other way to learn something about who Jesus is is to simply ask him. Isn't that amazing? That's deep, isn't it? Just ask him, what does he say about himself? So, in addition to the signs in order to sort of understand who jesus is in the gospel of john we look at who he himself says he is and just as there are seven signs recorded in the gospel of john there are seven statements jesus makes about himself that he introduces by saying i am blank they are the i am sayings in the gospel of john AND SO YOU GAIN A SENSE ABOUT WHO JESUS IS BY FOLLOWING THE SIGNS AND BY FOLLOWING THE I AM SAYINGS. HE SAYS, FIRST OF ALL, I AM THE BREAD OF LIFE IN JOHN CHAPTER 6. HE HAD JUST FED THE 5,000, AND HE CONTRASTS HIS ACT WITH WHAT MOSES HAD DONE IN THE WILDERNESS IN PROVIDING MANNA TO THE PEOPLE OF ISRAEL. BUT HE CALLS HIMSELF THE LIVING BREAD THAT COMES DOWN FROM HEAVEN, WHICH ANYONE MAY EAT AND NOT DIE. He says, I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. He was just about to heal the man born blind. And he demonstrated that he was God incarnate, echoing Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, when God said, let there be light. He says, I am the door in John chapter 10. He uses the metaphor of the sheepfold, and he establishes, That himself he is the only way to enter that fold and that quote he who does not enter by the door but climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber he says i am the good shepherd in john 10 as well he demonstrates that he cares for his own even by laying down his life for his sheep and he does so by taking one of the titles attributed to god in the old testament and that is the shepherd He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He made that statement immediately before raising Lazarus from the dead. And his raising of Lazarus was no mere coincidence, but a powerful demonstration that he has life in himself and that he gives it to his own. And he says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. He establishes that he is the only way to God, that he confirms his identity as the incarnate Son of God, and that he alone is the giver of eternal life. And then there is the final I am statement when he says, I am the true vine in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and that is our text this morning. It is the final I am statement in the Gospel of John. Final in the sense that I am is followed by a descriptor, I am the true vine in this case there are actually two other i am statements in the gospel of john as well and they don't have descriptors like the others but they are at least as important because jesus simply says i am he says it in john chapter 8 and then later on also in john chapter 18 he takes the greek translation of the hebrew phrase that god had given to moses as his covenant name yahweh Or sometimes in the old days it was jehovah and that simply means i am and that designation was not lost on the jews either for in each case they either accused him of blasphemy in claiming to be god or they fell to the ground in abject fear they knew what he was saying when he said i am and so through the signs and through the i am statements we have a pretty good summary of what the gospel of john has been for us up to this point in time, and it is an appropriate summary this morning. It leads us into the beginning of chapter 15, and our text this morning are the first three verses of that chapter, where he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit you are already clean because of the word which i have spoken to you now you'll recall that uh, we encounter a rather awkward transition between chapters 14 and 15. chapter 14 was the continuation of what we call the upper room discourse it was begun back in chapter 13 and it, uh, chapter 14 is the most beloved chapter in the Bible for Christians, according to multiple surveys, because it's a chapter filled with wonderful promises. Jesus promises in chapter 14 that he goes to prepare a place for them in heaven. He promises the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, who will go with them in his absence. He promises that they will do greater works even than Jesus. He promises that Jesus will answer every prayer Prayed in the will of God, that is, in the name of Jesus. And so it's no wonder that chapter 14 is such a beloved chapter. And then in chapter 14, we end on what appears to be a note of finality when Jesus says, Get up and let us go from here. Do you remember that? And so you get the impression that the disciples get up from the table in the upper room and leave. But then there's chapter 15 and chapter 16. And chapter 17, they don't appear to leave. Jesus continues to teach. In chapter 15, he teaches about the vine and the vine dresser, which we begin this morning. He also de- teaches about the disciples' relation to one another and their relation to the world. In chapter 16, he teaches more about the promised Holy Spirit and the promise of answered prayer. In chapter 17 we have jesus prayer to the father and then in chapter 18 finally they cross the kidron valley and enter the garden of gethsemane it could be that when jesus says get up let us go from here that just starts the process of leaving and you know how long that can take or it may be that they actually do get up and go and that jesus teaches them as they walk out of Jerusalem toward the gate that takes them to the Kidron Valley. He did, after all, do a great deal of teaching as he was walking. He is called by scholars the peripatetic teacher, which means he just taught while his disciples walked along the way and listened to what he said. But whatever the setting, when he starts teaching, he focuses on vines and branches and vineyards and vine dressers. Now in southwest florida we seem to grow everything except grapes but there are vines everywhere in israel vineyards their management and their value are pervasive in their culture and they are everywhere to behold so it is not surprising that jesus would use vines and vineyards as an object lesson in his teaching but even more likely jesus teaches about vines and vineyards and vine dressers Because those things have been used in the Old Testament to describe the nature of the relationship between God and Israel. The vine or the vineyard is the pervasive symbol of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel is God's choice vine or God's vineyard. In Ezekiel chapter 19, for instance, We read, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. In Psalm 80, we read, you removed a vine from Egypt. You, speaking of God, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. But the Old Testament also describes the relationship between God and and Israel, his choice vine, as troubled at best. And so in Isaiah chapter 5 we read, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard in a fertile hill. He dug all around it, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, And he also hewed out why a wine vat in it then he expected to produce good grapes but it produced only worthless grapes later on in chapter 5 of isaiah for the vineyard of the lord of hosts is the house of israel and the men of judah his delightful plant thus he looked for justice but behold bloodshed for righteousness But behold, a cry of distress. Jeremiah echoes those concerns when he says in chapter 2, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Even today, a bunch of grapes on the vine is used as a symbol of Israel. But the Old Testament portrays the vineyard image as indicative of Israel's degeneration, its spiritual poverty, its tendency toward idolatry. And so when Jesus shows up and declares, I am the true vine, he is declaring a radical reorientation for the people of God. Because, you see, in Old Testament Israel, the people of God are given a special vocation. They are to be God's holy people. They are to be the representatives of God to the entire world. They, as Abraham's descendants, are to be a blessing to all nations. But sadly, Israel has instead become like all the other nations. They have replaced the worship of Yahweh with the worship of idols of the surrounding nations. Instead of being the servant of the Lord, they have become the servant of Baal. But Jesus as Isaiah's servant, hymns, the hymns that we've been studying in our Communion Sundays lately, uh, we have described Jesus as the servant of the Lord, and he is the one who comes to the rescue Of this flailing people while Israel could not fulfill its calling as the servant of the Lord Jesus fulfills that calling as the servant of the Lord and so instead of Israel being the vine Jesus comes and he says I am the true vine so as we examine this remarkable metaphor for the next couple of weeks I want you to see in Jesus the fulfillment of the promise of a people who will ultimately gather a holy people to himself, both Jew and Gentile, and who will actually bless all nations in the process. That's the essence of what Jesus says when he says, I am the true vine. Let's look at this passage once again, verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And so he says, my father is the vine dresser. And we'll say some things about the vine dresser in this passage. First of all, let's note his care for his people. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. In this verse, we see a a wonderful picture of the care of the father for his children, the vine dresser for the vine. But unfortunately, it is masked in most of the translations of John chapter 15. The text that we read this morning says, "...every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away." Now the phrase, takes away, is a translator's interpretation of those words. It's a rather unfortunate one at that. They do it, I believe, to try to to make it consistent with what Jesus says later in chapter 15, verse 6. Remember, Jesus says in that verse, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Pretty despicable end, isn't it? But the Greek words in those two verses are different. The word for takes away in verse 2 is not the same word as thrown away in verse 6. And as a matter of fact, in verse 2, the word takes away is the Greek word iro, which could mean takes away in the sense of dispose of. That's a that's sort of an unusual translation, but more often it's used to mean to lift up or to lift from the ground. And that's what a vine dresser does with a bunch of grapes when their branch is trailing on the ground and in danger of not producing enough fruit. Because grapes are not like pumpkins or squash, which grow pretty well on the ground, when grapes lie on the ground, the vine dresser then lifts them up and he ties them into a trellis or he does whatever he can to keep them off the ground so that they would be without blemish and be fruitful. And this portion of the parable has to do with the care of the vine, not with the destruction of corrupt branches. And so when you think about it, dear friends, what a beautiful image of a gracious and compassionate heavenly father who does whatever he can to preserve and provide for his children when he lifts up the branches that are not yet fruitful and gives them an opportunity to grow. There's a similar parable that Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse six. Let's read that for a moment. He began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, behold, for three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does he even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, let it alone, sir. For this year, too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, I'll cut it down. So that's a second chance for the fig tree, isn't it? Second chance for the vine dresser to care for his vine. So let me ask you, dear friends, have you been given a second chance by the vine dresser? Have you? A third chance? A fourth chance? How many times has the vine dresser lifted you up off the ground? How many times has the vine dresser worked on your behalf to preserve your life and make you grow? For me, it's more times than I can possibly remember. Another chance. If I'm not bearing fruit, the first thing he does is to lift me up where I can be nourished by the Son of Righteousness. That's the first thing that we learn about the vine dresser. And then there is his pruning. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So the vine dresser prunes the branches that are bearing fruit and the word, Greek word for that is kathairo which means to cleanse or to purify it's related to our word catharsis the vine dresser removes or cleans any elements which hinder the development of fruit perhaps in our case it might be bad habits or maybe it's changed values or maybe our priorities become reordered Whatever hinders our spiritual growth is taken away in the pruning process. Taken away because of the loving care of the vine dresser for his children. And so when we come to Christ and when we grow closer to Christ, we find ourselves changing because we lose interest in some of the things that fed our sinful natures or our selfish desires over these years. And some of those things get stripped away. They're often not particularly pleasant. But in the end, result is that we bear more fruit for the Savior. What things has the vine dresser stripped away from you over these years? What desires and inclinations have hindered your walk with Christ? What attitudes or behaviors have been altered as you have grown with Christ? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we read, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. What childish things have you put behind you because the vine dresser has cleansed you, has purified you, has pruned you? What speech have you discarded? what thinking is now in your rearview mirror because of this pruning what reasoning have you cast aside what manners of life have been pruned from you and so we learn from this vine dresser about his pruning and then we learn something about fruit every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away and every branch that bears fruit he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit and so we may bear more fruit. That fruit is Christian character, essentially. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and following, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it is that kind of character that will be most notable to a world to a world which is in distress and dysfunction. the very opposite of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. A world which is in corruption and selfishness, a world in which there is chaos and dysfunction and division. Only when believers in Jesus Christ find themselves cared for by the vine dresser, lifted up so that we can grow, pruned so that we bear more and more fruit, so that nothing will hinder our testimony or our lives. Only then will the world actually take notice. Only then will the message that we want to share be taken seriously. Jesus is the true vine, but you are the branches, and the branches bear the fruit, and only do so because the Father, the vine dresser, cares for. And nurtures and prunes the branches making us fruitful well this text also says a bit more about the vine and the branches in verse 3 you are already clean the text says because of the word which I have spoken to you so look at the condition first of all this is a wonderfully encouraging word about the spiritual condition of those who are growing in Christ not those who are perfect, because perfection doesn't happen in this life, but in the life to come. But Jesus does tell these 11 disciples, you are already clean. And the word clean is kathairo again, just the same word as the word pruned. Jesus is saying to these upper room disciples that they have already been pruned, they are already clean. Why does he say that? Why are they clean? What has happened to prune these believers? Well, Jesus tells us exactly what's happened. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Dear friends, it, don't miss this. It is the word of Jesus himself that has pruned them. That's what the Father, that's what the vine dresser is using to change us, to refine us, to sanctify us, to prune us so that our testimony might glorify him. It is the word of God that does the cleansing. What kind of branch do you want to be? A branch that bears fruit? A branch that in Christ fulfills the vocation of the people of God? A branch that participates in blessing all the nations? I trust that you want to be a branch like that. A branch that exemplifies the kind of Christian character that gains the attention of a dysfunctional world. That kind of branch can only happen through the Word of Christ. The cause of our pruning, our cleansing, is the Word of God, the Word of Christ. And that's, by the way, why we study the Bible together. That's why we spend time in the Word in Bible studies. That's why we spend time in the word on our own. That's why we do things as a congregation like study with the pastor, where we're all studying the same passages of scripture each day and then gathering from time to time to share what God has been teaching us, how he's been pruning us, cleaning us, because the word of Christ is acting on our behalf to prune whatever habits and attitudes and behaviors are diverting or distracting us from fulfilling our mission. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Dear friends, bask in the knowledge this morning that the vine dresser cares about the branches, and he wants us to be nourished, nurtured and grow into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ and bear much fruit. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer. Use the word of God. Use the word of Christ to lift us up off the ground to enable us to bear fruit, to grow into the likeness of Christ so that we would find ourselves prospering as a vine that really does honor the master vine dresser. And we'll give you glory for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.